0: You're listening to an Airwave Media podcast.
1: Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on the science, alone.
0: Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And we are changing things up a little bit this week. Um, We know that we said we were going to talk about cancer, but with the ACIP hearing for J&J, we wanted to provide some additional updates. And in addition to that, we actually did a really in-depth, comprehensive vaccine Q&A last week with the south florida vaccination information group on facebook and so we thought that we would share that with you all so basically today we're going to provide you some updates on the j and j pause uh, that has now been lifted and we're also going to link to the audio from the vaccine q a in that q a we talk about where we address a lot of the commonly asked questions we debunk some myths uh, we give a bit of an update on some of the variants, how that might impact vaccine efficacy, so we think that'll be really important for you guys to listen to. And then next week, we will get back on our schedule and talk about cancer as promised. So just to recap what we talked about last week, if you tuned in, we covered the the emerging variants in particular in the US and um, we gave a little bit of an update on what that means, how the dynamics of that of virus transmission have been changed now that the B one one seven variant is the predominant strain of the virus in this country. What else, Andrew? Did we talk about anything else last week that we should highlight? Um we talked about the current state
2: of vaccination administration around the country and while you know we have a lot of good signals with regard to that we are seeing case numbers and hospitalizations increase presumably due to the spread of these emerging variants that are more transmissible and then of course we did you know another quick summary on you know the vaccines we did provide an update on the Johnson and Johnson COVID-19 vaccine which we of course are going
0: to revisit again today. And we also talked about how, in addition, exactly what Andrea is saying, in in addition to the um, transmissibility of the variants, people have this false sense of confidence. You know, yes, we're deploying the vaccine and we're doing a great job of that in, in the U.S. in particular, but we have not hit a critical threshold of vaccinations yet. And I think people are prematurely lifting some of the mitigation strategies that really have to remain in place. So so definitely tune into that if you didn't catch it. So before we dive into the J&J hearing, we wanted to talk a little bit about what we recorded last night. We had our first installment of our Dirty DMs Instagram Live. And the whole point of that, you know, I'm sure we've we've spoken about this and you guys can probably guess that we are inundated with a lot of nasty messages from people who are really upset with the messages that we are putting out um, on social media. Lots of anti-vaxxers are accusing us of being paid to put out the messages that we put out. Of course, and I know we've said this a million times, but worth reiterating, we never take a penny, no one is ever paid. Does anything? Not the government, not pharmaceutical companies. We are not getting paid. We're just two scientists who are critically appraising the data and um, translating it for the general public. That's it. So it was a really cool event. Didn't you love it, Andrea? Yeah, it was fun. We we even came up with specialty
2: cocktails with fun names like the salty troll, which also happened to be delicious. But you know, it was. It was good because it wasn't just us reading the nasty grams that we get, but we also addressed a lot of the false claims in many of those messages. So we did, it was, you know, a combo of trying to bring an air of humor to a lot of the hostility we receive, but also use it as a teachable moment.
0: Right. And we're not making light of this, you know, we keep saying it's never okay to send any sort of nasty messages or harass anyone online. So this is sort of our way of coping with it. (laughs) And is exactly as Andrea said, we use it as a teachable moment one other fun thing so andrea we just so you talked about the salty troll we also had just going back to the cocktails because this is of course something that i'm very excited about we also had the the big pharma shill since we're accused of that on a regular basis and the blood on your hands cuz people mm-hmm. tell us that we're murderers all the time so Yeah, so a little bit of dark humor, (laughs) trying to make light of a pretty heavy subject. And then at the end, we did also read some of the really... Positive and beautiful messages that you guys have sent us that remind us that what we're doing is really important and that we are making a difference. So tune into that. We're going to have this uh, dirty DMs live every Sunday, if all goes to plan around 30 <laughs> <Yeah. 8:30> PM.
2: <laughs> I have time. to say we have to be a little realistic because we do a weekly podcast, we do daily social media posts, you know. So we of course, you know, that may not be every week, depending on how our schedules play out.
0: Very good thing to add, Andrea. Yes, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Okay, so do you want to tell us a little bit about this hearing, Andrea? I know you were like live tweeting throughout.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, so if you guys remember, the Advisory Committee on Immu- Immunization Practices, or ACIP, or ACIP, is an organization of medical and public health experts that help provide recommendations on administration of vaccines so the johnson and johnson COVID 19 vaccine was actually paused on april 13th and there was an emergency hearing by acip on the 14th that we discussed last week and the reason that this was paused was because there was six cases identified of a very rare type of blood clot called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis but it presented with low platelets, which is called thrombocytopenia. And so based on the rarity, but also the severity of these six instances, the FDA and CDC decided they were going to pause administration of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in particular to continue to review the data and determine best practices for this. And so on Friday, April 23rd, that was the follow-up meeting. So this was 10 days after the pause, and this was a summary of the new findings and developments. So now ACIP and, and medical professionals are calling this particular condition, thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome. So basically this just means clots with low platelets. And this is a rare presentation. And if you remember last week, this is important because the normal way we treat clots is using blood thinners such as heparin. But in these instances, treating with heparin is not indicated. We have to do an alternative type of treatment. So By the meeting on Friday, now there's a total of 15 cases, and this is amongst the 6.8 million vaccines that have been administered. So it is still very rare, but there are a couple of things that, you know, were discussed in particular. So these 15 cases all occurred in women aged 18 to 59. Twelve of these clotting events were the CVST, so the the cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, and three of them were other presentations of clots. But they all presented with the low platelets, and that's why they've named it TTS for this thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome. Now, headache is the biggest warning sign, but this is not headache immediately after vaccination like we typically get. This is a headache that starts to emerge six days after vaccination. So on average, the symptoms started about eight days after vaccination, and the range was six to 15 days after vaccination.
0: And Um, Andrea, we're not just
2: talking about a regular headache, right? I mean, this is a very severe headache. Correct. Very severe headache and it presents with other sorts of things such as abdominal pain, leg pain, you know, other sorts of things. It could also present with, you know, weakness and stiffness in the neck and things like that. But the biggest warning sign is this very severe headache um, that starts, you know, well after the vaccination occurred. Now, aside from that, you know, we do want to mention that three women did did unfortunately pass away from this condition. You know there are five that have already been released from the hospital, and the remainers are in various stages of recovery. Um, so you know we don't want to make light of this as an adverse event. It is a severe adverse event. It does require typically hospitalization and inpatient treatment but there are no obvious other risk factors seven of the women were characterized as having obesity two had hypertension two were on oral contraceptive pills so there's not a clear pattern per se of of you know what's going to determine this rare clotting um, aside from the fact that as of right now all of these cases are in young women kind of within the reproductive age
0: so andrea can you tell us a little bit about what the decision how the voting went you know what how did we leave this hearing (laughs) absolutely so
2: you know they did this was a six-hour meeting so it was a very thorough comprehensive you know summary of the risk factors. They talked about the benefits of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So it's a one dose. It's refrigerator stable. It has huge implications for migrant populations, people experiencing homelessness, people that have a phobia of needles. I think we we forget about the importance of a single vaccine for, for these types of groups and, of course, rural and developing areas. So there are very, very obvious benefits of having a vaccination that, you know, offers those things. Now, on top of that, they also looked at population level as well as individual benefits of the vaccine as compared to the risk, the extremely rare risk of this particular TTS syndrome. And even when looking at the high-risk group, right, women specifically 18 to 59, the benefits of vaccination far outweigh the risks of TTS. And that's looking at things like deaths prevented by vaccination, um, hospital stays prevented by vaccination, all of these sorts of things. And so even when looking at kind of the highest-risk group amongst all of these different demographics, the benefits far outweigh the risks. So The ACIP voted to resume administration of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So it's been officially unpaused as of Saturday morning and places around the country have been administering it. But they will provide a fact sheet about this rare adverse event moving forward and will particularly emphasize that to the specific demographic that we have seen these instances in so far. So women aged 18 to 59.
0: So let's let's just recap here. I think it's it's pretty remarkable. This is as you said still an extremely rare event. So for me the main takeaway is that our vaccine surveillance system is absolutely remarkable and very responsive because at the time of this pause, as you said, there were six cases out of almost 8 million. Okay, so that, that, that should give you guys confidence that our surveillance system is working very well. Now, people are asking us, you know, oh, we got the J&J vaccine, we're nervous, what should we be looking for? So again, reiterating the fact that this is all extremely rare. But some initial warning signs to be, to be aware of are, as, as we just described, a very severe headache that starts at least six or more days after vaccination and accompanied by some other symptoms such as chills, fever, nausea, vomiting, general malaise, lethargy, and abdominal pain. And then later in the clinical course, the severe headache continues with uh, neck pain or stiffness, again, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, unilateral weakness, speech difficulty, gaze deviation, loss of consciousness, and potentially seizure. Now, again, these things sound pretty scary, but as Andrea just said, These experts weighed all of the risks and benefits, and they determined that the benefits far outweigh the risks. And again, the pause was lifted. One other thing to note people are wondering what this means for the other vaccines that are approved in the US, the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines. TTS has not been observed after the mRNA vaccines. And as of Friday, there were 182 million doses administered with no cases reported. So let's recap. Let's summarize. So TTS is rare, but clinically serious, has to be taken seriously. It is potentially life-threatening, and it has been observed in association with the j COVID-19 vaccine again symptom onset appears to occur at least several days a- after vaccination typically around 1 to 2 weeks it's also important to recognize tts early because as andrea said you it, that really you know will impact what the appropriate treatment is because you can't treat it with blood thinners such as heparin right so mm-hmm. that's why it's really important to recognize what's going on early on and um, i think I-
2: you know that underscores why you know everyone is taking this so seriously because it is treatable and manageable as long as you treat it appropriately.
0: Right. Um, Again, this should give you guys confidence that our vaccine safety monitoring system is incredible and it is able to rapidly detect rare, even very rare adverse events following immunization and quickly assess safety signals. And of course, this is going to be very, very carefully monitored on an ongoing basis. And it was even proposed, I know, Andrea, we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording, they might actually expand the VARS database search strategy or TTS reports specifically to allow for robust analysis of clotting events and factors such as thrombocytopenia or low, low platelets, excuse me. So this is something that, that is being taken very, very seriously, but we are happy to see that the pause has been lifted, that there will be information provided to people who do get the J&J shot, but that this one dose vaccine is very important in particular for certain subpopulations and all in all, the uh, the benefits far outweigh the risks.
2: Yeah, I mean I think just, you know, we we definitely want to emphasize that, you know, surveillance is very important. The the, you know, expert committees have determined and, you know, have voted that in fact these benefits dramatically outweigh the risks. You know, for for everyone, this this vaccine is very effective at preventing illness, preventing infection, preventing severe disease. Um, And is is going to have huge implications in tackling the ongoing pandemic, which, you know, as we know, it's not just limited to the U.S. You know, there are countries around the world that are getting hit very, very hard with COVID-19 right now.
0: All right. Anything else to add before we turn it over to our recording from our vaccine Q&A last week? No, I
2: think let's, um, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a long recording, so this episode will be a little bit longer than than typical, but it has a lot of the commonly asked questions about COVID-19, about the vaccines, and so we hope that it is useful to continue to provide you all with ongoing updates of the pandemic situation.
0: Andrea if you can kick things off our number one question was can vaccinated people still transmit the virus so
2: it's it's not an all or nothing answer here. So, you know, when the clinical trials first started, the main goal was what we call a primary endpoint. So, you know, we're in a pandemic, we're trying to find vaccines that first and foremost, reduce illness burdens, because people are getting sick, people are getting hospitalized, and people are dying. So the first goal of all these clinical trials were to say, okay, well, will do these vaccines prevent symptomatic COVID. And the second endpoint for those clinical trials were, okay, do they reduce the severity of symptomatic COVID? So that first data set that we saw when um, the FDA and the CDC were reviewing the the vaccines used in the U.S. were those endpoints. But then the next question becomes, okay, so they prevent symptomatic illness, they reduce disease severity, they reduce risk of hospitalization, they reduce risk of death. But do they also reduce the ability of a vaccinated person to get infected? And that phenomenon is called sterilizing immunity, meaning once you're vaccinated, you can't become infected with the pathogen. And the pathogen is that disease-causing microorganism. So in this case, this is a virus. So we didn't have that answer until recently. And now there are new data. That, is, that are be, continuing to be collected now that we have more and more people vaccinated around the world that do in fact demonstrate that yes, these vaccinations also prevent a vaccinated person from getting infected. So what that means is if you can't physically get infected, even if maybe you have some virus transiently in your body because you encountered an infected person, if that virus can't colonize you and reproduce in you, it's very unlikely that you would then transmit or be able to transmit the virus to others. Now, that is not a hundred percent all or nothing, right? We know nothing is a hundred percent effective. And that is true for seatbelts, for vaccines, even the best vaccines we're seeing over 90% efficacy for the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines in particular, which is fantastic. And that holds true for these infection rates as well. So they're more than 90% effective at preventing infection too. But there are still gonna be people who, once they're vaccinated, they may still be able to get infected. We don't know if those people can then transmit the virus to others it's less likely because it's probable that the vaccination, even if it's not 100% effective in a single person, will likely reduce how much virus they carry. We just don't know that little component yet. Um, And because we don't have enough people vaccinated around the country yet, we wanna still keep wearing our masks in public for that risk that we still just can't answer that question to.
0: Well, you just answered the next question, which was, if we're vaccinated, why do we need to continue to wear masks? So part of that is precisely what Andrea just said. Um, And it's also touches upon something else that folks are asking. There there have been some reports um, of these breakthrough cases, people getting COVID even after being fully vaccinated. So to be clear, just to be totally clear here, you're only considered fully vaccinated two weeks after your second dose of the vaccine, if you're taking, uh, if we're talking about the Moderna and, and Pfizer vaccines. So it is possible that you are exposed to the virus between doses. It's possible that you are exposed to the virus even before you had your first dose and didn't realize it because, because we know that the incubation period for this virus can be up to 14 days. Um, but yes, it is possible because as Andrea said, nothing in this world is 100%, right? So it is still possible that we're going to see these breakthrough cases. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it's been something like 5,600 breakthrough cases out of like 84 million people who are fully vaccinated in the United States. That is a really,
2: really tiny number. It's less (laughs) than 1%. So that is huge. That means you know, we saw some news reports that are saying, Oh, I think it was 5800 or 5840 or something like that It was like 5800 people contracted COVID after being vaccinated. And again, they're they're forgetting that that denominator, how many people have been vaccinated, and it's been millions and millions of people. So, you know, having a breakthrough rate of less than 1% is phenomenal. Um, you know, and on top of that, even if you are a breakthrough, breakthrough case, it is much more likely that your case will be milder. Um, you will be less likely to require hospitalization, and you'll be less likely to have more poor outcomes.
0: Um, so that's really important to keep in mind. The vaccines do an incredible. first of all, they do an incredible job of preventing illness, as we know, but they also do an even better job at preventing hospitalization, severe illness, and of course death. Mm-hmm. So really incredible efficacy. There were some questions that came through Andrea about, you know, do people's immune systems react differently? Um, Are some people better protected than others? I'm not going to even attempt to butcher it, so I'll turn it over to you.
2: Yeah. So, you know, we talk a lot about efficacy, right? So people are like, okay, what what does 95% efficacy really mean? And efficacy is population level. So what that's saying is, when we're looking at the proportion of people that got sick or got infected, whatever that that parameter you're looking at is, um, it's that many people in the unvaccinated contingency versus the number of people in the vaccinated contingency. It's not saying within an individual person, you're 95% protected. So some people are going to be fully protected. They're not going to get infected. They're not going to get ill. They're not going to get severely ill and so on and so forth. There are going to be some people population level that are at greater risk on an individual level. Um, And those are going to be people that have less robust immune responses. So we know that people that fall generally into that category are older people because our immune system tends to decline as we age. Um, People with immunocompromised disorders, so people that are cancer patients that are undergoing treatment, people that are transplant recipients that are um, obviously on immunosuppressants to, to, you know, anti-rejection meds. Um, People that have autoimmune disorders that are on medications to dampen that immune response for their disease itself. So those people are going to be less likely to have as robust an immune response to vaccination, which means that they may be, generally speaking, at higher risk for being one of those breakthrough cases. And it's not to say that vaccination is dangerous for them. It is safe. Um, but it just might not be quite as effective for them. And that is why we need herd immunity. Herd immunity, this concept is not let the susceptible people fend for themselves, it's get the vast majority of the population protected so we can make this bubble around susceptible people, people that can't be vaccinated currently, like children, or people that were vaccinated, but the vaccine is less likely to be as robust in them. And that is the goal of getting as many people as possible vaccinated.
0: And now Andrea, you touched on herd immunity. We did get some questions about herd immunity. And exactly as Andrea explained, it's basically a population level defense. I picture like all of us holding up our shields and protecting as a group against this virus. And you know, there are different ways to estimate the the amount of herd immunity, that critical threshold, how many people in our population need to be vaccinated to achieve that level of herd immunity. And typically the estimates are anywhere between 70 to, on the upper end, 90% of people. Right, right now, I think we're at about 25% of the U.S. population. Sorry, Andrea, you were about nope, to say. No, something. I was going to say, you know, that estimate depends
2: on how the reproductive value of the virus. So the more efficiently the virus spreads, the more quickly it can reproduce, that's going to inch that threshold for herd immunity up. And so we're seeing new variants that are more transmissible. Some have evidence that they cause more severe illness. That may mean that our herd immunity threshold is going to climb a little bit more. But right now we're still estimating that we need at least 75% of the population vaccinated.
0: So we have a ways to go, guys. And that's why sessions like these are so important because we really need to get the word out. Um, and you know, we're protecting, as Andrea said, we're protecting everyone, every single person who gets vaccinated is doing so for our entire population. So if you've been vaccinated, thank you so much. You, you, you've you, helped all of us. So Andrea, you mentioned variants. We got so many questions about variants. So maybe we could spend a little bit of time talking about those. Um, so we've spent some time on our podcast, of course, discussing this. We've done some posts recently about the B117 variant, also known as the UK variant, which is now the dominant strain in this predominant strain in this country. Um, what we've seen is that children are actually now driving transmission. Now, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that children are more likely to transmit the virus than adults. It means that previously, when you think about the original strain of the virus, for some reason, children really weren't transmitting it that much. That's not the case with the UK variant. So we're seeing these major outbreaks around the country linked to children, ga- school gatherings, sporting events where you have a lot of young young children and young adults gathering. Um, Andrea, were you going to jump in with something? Or? Yeah. So you know, there's it's it's kind of multifactorial, right? So we have if you look at the
2: breakdown of who's been vaccinated in the U.S. It's very heavy toward, weighted towards older persons, people with pre-existing conditions. And part of that was because those were the priority groups initially. So everybody in that group that has wanted a vaccine at least has, um, at least in the U.S., we know that this is very different in other countries, um, but at least in the U.S., they have gotten an opportunity to get vaccinated. So those individuals are now protected. So we're seeing fewer and fewer cases of older persons people with um, lower, um, you know, uh, higher risk factors and and higher risk for severe illness. And what that's doing is it's also shifting the demographics of the susceptible population to younger individuals. And so that coupled with these new variants, um, especially the UK variant B117, which seems to infect even young children much more, Effectively than the previous variants, um, we're seeing a shift in more cases among young adults who are less likely to be vaccinated, um, at least right now, and then more cases among children and also people affiliated with children-related gatherings. So as as Jess mentioned, sporting events, extracurricular activities, things like that. And what that means is um, we need younger adults to get vaccinated. So we're seeing a shift in hospitalizations as well. So we're seeing increases in case numbers and hospitalizations, but the proportion of those individuals are now younger adults. So what that means is younger adults need to get vaccinated too because they're now getting more severely ill and they're going to have poorer outcomes. There is some evidence that these variants, in particular the B117, may cause more severe illness in young adults. It doesn't appear that they cause more severe illness in children, but they can be transmitted very effectively by children. So since children cannot be vaccinated yet, We need them to continue to wear their masks. We need everybody in public to continue to wear their masks because these variants spread more quickly than the previous virus in the U.S. And since we don't have that herd immunity threshold yet, we want to make sure that we continue to slow the spread down. And the reason for that is because the faster the virus spreads, the faster new mutations can arise. So, mutations themselves are completely random. It's just errors during reproduction of the virus or replication. But the more times a virus replicates, the more times these random errors can accumulate. And eventually, those random errors are going to give the virus some advantage. So, we're seeing in the case of the B117 that some of those advantages seem to be related to how efficiently the virus can infect us. And so, that's going to be a mutation that will be selected for evolutionarily. And so we need to make sure that we don't provide an environment for more mutations of the virus. So in public, even if you're vaccinated, you wanna continue wearing your masks. For children, now that we know that these variants can be transmitted amongst children and to adults that children interact with, we wanna make sure that children are wearing their masks and we're being very careful until we have more people vaccinated.
0: Thank you, Andrea. I have had to mute myself because my children are here making quite a bit of noise. So thank you so much. So what what about how these variants are impacting vaccine efficacy? Because everyone wants to know, you know, are we going to need booster shots? And so the short answer is, I mean, it. it what the good news is that the vaccines, the current vaccines that are approved um, in the U.S., they do still demonstrate high efficacy against the B one one seven variant, right? So that that's right. the good news. However, as Andrea just pointed out, we're concerned about new variants <laughs> emerging, and we don't know if the vaccines are going to have high efficacy against those variants. Right, and we actually have other variants
2: in the U.S. Um, B one one seven is the most predominant of all of the different. Virus variants in the country right now. But again, that could shift depending on how much uncontrolled spread we continue to observe. Um, but as of right now, the data demonstrate that the vaccines we have available are effective against the B117. The limited data we have um, for some of these smaller studies does suggest that they may also be effective against some of the other variants. It may be slightly reduced, but it doesn't seem to be completely gone. Um, but as far as a booster goes, we don't know yet. Um, you know, there are some musings that we may need a single boost, um, maybe about at about a year, and then we might not need anything moving forward. It's very different than the flu virus. I want to be clear about that. The flu virus is that it's, well, the flu virus is a whole family of viruses and they mutate extremely, extremely quickly. And I'm not going to get into why that is, but um, it's very different behavior. And so we wouldn't expect it to be identical to what we you know, do with an annual flu vaccine. But we may need a single booster and it may need to be reformulated to adjust and accommodate these, these emerging variants. And Pfizer and Moderna in particular are actually already addressing this. They're already formulating these slightly altered vaccines. And basically what they do is that template that they use, the RNA template for that spike protein is adjusted um, a little bit to accommodate that new mutation in the spike protein so that when our body makes the new spike protein, it will include that change.
0: So maybe now is a good time to talk about the data that were recently released by Pfizer BioNTech and Moderna. So of course, these trials are ongoing, right? And at this point, we have about six months of data for both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. And so they announced, or Pfizer earlier this month announced that they had this this fantastic finding in their trials that the vaccines maintained excellent efficacy close to 92% if I'm not, 91 point something percent efficacy measured at six months after the second dose of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. What this means is that the vaccine is effective for at least six months. <laughs> it does not mean that it's only that it's only effective for six months, right? So of course we're going to continue to monitor over time. We expect all the experts expect that efficacy will remain very high for you know, much longer than six months, but we're limited by the data we have available. And Moderna also released uh, very similar uh, data showing also, I think it was over 90%, over 90% yep. at six months after the second dose. So exactly. that's fantastic news. Exactly. There were some questions, Andrea, people always ask us, <laughs> do we have a favorite between Pfizer, <laughs> right. and Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson? So right. obviously we know, and we will speak about it briefly, um, that, you know, of course, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is on hold, and we will talk about that momentarily, but, um, I happen to receive the Moderna vaccine, Andrea received the Pfizer vaccine. We would have received any vaccine, including Johnson & Johnson. The thing we we like to highlight about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is that people seem to think that it's somehow worse than the other two vaccines that's not the case. Those trials were conducted later on, right? And in a different, at different time, in different places, and at a time when there were more variants circulating. So what seems like reduced efficacy is probably just a reflection of real world effectiveness of the vaccines at a time when the variants were more prevalent. Andrew, and also,
2: you know, yep. it's a single dose vaccine, right? So we know that a two dose regimen, you have this. I'm going to try and draw it with my hands, but you have this initial bump of antibody production and you have other things going on too. We use antibodies as like a simple endpoint, um, but you also have a T cell response and you have other things going on, but you have this initial bump of antibodies relative to no antibodies, and then it declines a little bit. And then after that second dose, you ramp it up and you boost it with that second dose. Um, It's called a prime boost regimen, and that's a two dose. And that's what we're seeing with the Moderna and the Pfizer. Um, With the Johnson and Johnson, it's a single dose. Now they are also testing a two dose regimen, but we haven't seen that data yet. So we don't know how it compares in terms of efficacy. Um, so, you know, we have to, it's apples and oranges. You cannot directly compare the, the three. Um, you can more closely compare the Pfizer and the Moderna because they use a similar technology and they use a similar dosing scheme and they were actually trialed in, uh, in similar times. But even those, they use different groups of people. It is not Alternate realities, right? It's not the counterfactual as Jess will tell you from your um, biostatistics and research study design. So it's different people that have different behaviors, maybe certain people are wearing masks more frequently and other things because it is a trial, but it is in the real world. These people are people going about their business. Um, And then on top of that, you have more variants when the Johnson & Johnson um, trial was conducted. But interestingly, Johnson & Johnson included in their trial, they actually looked at infection rates, whereas Moderna and Pfizer didn't initially, and we didn't have that data until later. Um, And they found that The single dose reduced infection rates, it reduced symptomatic COVID, it reduced hospitalizations, it reduced severe illness. um, And it has a lot of advantages for certain groups of people. So people experiencing homelessness who don't know if they're going to be able to get back to the same place in three or four weeks to get their next dose or rural areas or developing areas that don't have cold storage and they need something that's refrigerator stable. And so we have to consider all of the factors that affect how good a vaccine is. It's not simply just efficacy.
0: And as a reference point, we know that the flu vaccine that we get annually is between 30 to 60% effective on average, right? So these vaccines are incredible. And we're including Johnson & Johnson in that. Absolutely fantastic vaccine. I think it's time <laughs> that we talk about the J&J pause, Andrea. Sure. Do you want, I know this is, do you want to pick <laughs> sure, it off? Sure, yeah, or, I'll pick it up. Okay.
2: okay. <laughs> so last Tuesday. I know, what day is it? Last Tuesday. Um. The CDC and FDA recommended a pause across the country for administration of the single dose Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And the reason for that is because of our national surveillance program detected six instances of a very rare type of blood clotting. And the type of blood clotting is called CVST, um, which is cerebral venous sinus thrombosis but it was further more rare because it presented with another condition called thrombocytopenia which is low platelet count and the reason that this is um of particular attention is because normally when you develop a blood clot whether it happens to be this type called cvst or it's a deep vein thrombosis called a dvt or a pulmonary embolism called a pe these are typically treated with blood thinners like heparin the issue with the clot presenting with low platelets is that that traditional or that um, standard treatment of heparin can exacerbate that condition and make it worse. So before these cases, these six occurrences were identified, um, these people had gone in for symptoms of blood clot and they were treated with heparin. And it wasn't really until after they started getting treatment that we realized, or you know surveillance system realized that this maybe needed to take another look. And so that's, that was one of the first reasons why it got flagged. Um, and I want to be clear, this is a very rare occurrence. There's been 6.8 million Johnson and Johnson vaccines administered. So this is less than one instance out of 1 million. It's 0.87 per million. It's very, very, very rare. It's 0.000088%. Okay. Mm -hmm. So very, very rare. Um, and so last week they had an emergency hearing of the ACIP, which is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, by the CDC, and I did attend it. It's a four-hour discussion, and they had representatives from Johnson and Johnson, and they had epidemiology teams, and they had CDC representatives. And so they gave a rundown. And so what we what we or what they observed, there were these six instances. Um, one, they were all in women aged 18 to 38. Um, They all occurred between six and 13 days after receipt of that vaccine. And there are very clear symptoms, severe headache, not just a mild headache, a severe headache. So this is a brain, a clot in the region of the brain. Um, abdominal pain, uh, leg pain, shortness of breath, these are all symptoms. So they were saying, okay, well, we wanna give people a heads up that had been recently vaccinated. So within a two to three week time frame of getting the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, that if they do develop those symptoms, they wanna go see a healthcare provider and let them know that they recently received the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So they're not incorrectly treated. And on top of that, they want to review risk factors. Is there a certain demographic that is more prone to this? Is there a certain... Pre-existing condition that is more prone to this. So, aside from the fact that there were these were six white women, um, there weren't any other obvious patterns. Now, that's hard to look at because there's only six instances, right? So, three were characterized as having obesity. One was on some sort of hormonal supplement. We're not sure if it was an oral contraceptive or if it's hormone replacement. One had asthma. So, again, there's not trends. But the reason for the pause is to Continue to investigate this. Determine the best set of recommendations. Are they going to adjust who this vaccine is recommended for based on what they know? Are they going to, um, you know, implement more stringent monitoring systems and things like that? Um, again, the risk of someone who recently received the J and J vaccine developing this is very, very, very low, um, but it's something to be aware of. Not panic.
1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances.
0: So my main takeaway from this, and that was so beautifully said as always, Andrea, <laughs> is that when you hear people say, Oh, these vaccines are, you know, unsafe, they're not monitored my goodness, (laughs) there is nothing, no product, no food we ingest, no drug we take, no product we use, no makeup we apply to our skin that is more rigorously tested and monitored than these vaccines. The whole world is looking at these vaccines. And something with a prevalence rate of 0.00008% would basically shut down and put this vaccine on pause should give you all confidence confidence that we are monitoring this. This is, I mean, talk about rigorous safety testing. It doesn't get more rigorous than this. All right, Andrea, shifting gears slightly, um, we got some questions about, well, I guess some related questions. Can the vaccine give you COVID is first, (laughs) and second, can you test positive after receiving the vaccine? So, the, the the short answers are no, absolutely not. There is 0% chance that you can get COVID from these vaccines. There is zero live SARS-CoV-2, that's the virus that causes COVID. There is zero live virus present in any of the vaccines. That's for around the world. In um well, Andrea, if you wanted to break down the different vaccine technologies, the two mRNA vaccines that we have, the Pfizer and the moderna vaccines, they don't have any virus present whatsoever, right? In the Johnson and Johnson, maybe you could explain to us how there's the viral sure. vector zero SARS-CoV-2, no, no live virus whatsoever. So there's no possible way that you can be infected with COVID-19. And therefore there's also no possible way that you're going to test positive after receiving the vaccine.
2: Yeah. So you (laughs) summed it up, Jess. Um, you cannot get COVID from these vaccines. Um, so the Johnson, so the mRNA, again, it's, it's a template. So RNA is a template for a protein. So we have this little segment of RNA that basically is the template for that one. Oh, I'm gonna use my, my visual aid again. So this is, this is COVID, here he is. Um, this is the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So the virus itself has RNA inside of it, and that is its genetic material that allows it to make more baby viruses. Um, These yellow prongs that are sticking out, these are the spike proteins. And the red outside is another protein called the nucleocapsid protein. So the, the RNA that we use in the vaccine is just the template to make this one little protein of this whole virus. So when we get vaccinated, our bodies recognize that RNA, and they're like, hey, RNA, I'm going to make this protein. So it makes this spike protein. And then our immune system that's circulating is like, oh, that that's not a human protein. I need to go defend against it. Um, and so it mounts an immune response. And then it has enough resemblance to the original virus that if we ever encountered it, we would interact with this spike protein. And we would be like, Hey, I recognize that that doesn't belong here. And we would fight it off. Um, for the Johnson and Johnson, and also the AstraZeneca Oxford and the Sputnik, um, fit five. And, um, there's one other that I'm for, um, can sino, they use what we call a viral vector. So instead of the RNA inside a fatty droplet, They're using the gene for the spike protein and they put it inside another unrelated virus. Um, This isn't the exact virus, but an unrelated virus, a different virus. They use this virus as a shell, as a delivery vehicle. And this virus cannot replicate. It's functionally just serving as an exterior to shuttle the gene of the spike protein into our body. Once that gets inside our body, we do the same thing. We make the spike protein, our immune system mounts a response to it. And then if we ever encounter the real virus, we're protected. Um, So you can't get COVID from it. You also can't test positive on a diagnostic test. And the main reason for that is, first of all, you're injecting just the RNA or just the shuttle with the spike protein gene intramuscularly. Okay, so it's going to circulate transiently for a short period of time it's going to make protein for a little bit of time then it's going to all degrade and be gone from our bodies but when you're doing a diagnostic test, you're taking a mouth swab or you're taking a nose swab so there's no virus in there there's no pieces of the vaccine floating around in your nasopharyngeal tract so you're not going to test positive on a diagnostic test. If you test positive after your vaccine, it could be that you got infected before your vaccine and now you're testing positive. Um, If you're getting an antibody test, because some people want to get an antibody test to see if the vaccine worked, there are different types of antibody tests. And the antibody test is taking a blood sample. So this is different from the diagnostic tests that are taking a swab. But some antibody tests are looking for antibodies against the spike protein, And some antibody tests are looking for antibodies against a different piece of the virus, like the nucleocapsid protein. So if you got the vaccine, the only piece that's getting vaccinated with is the spike protein. So if the antibody test you get is for the nucleocapsid protein, you're not gonna test positive. You shouldn't have antibodies to that unless you were previously infected. But if you get an antibody test for the spike protein, you may test positive. But it's not generally recommended because these tests are just, qualitative, it's yes, no, unless you're going to a more comprehensive lab analysis, it's not telling you how much antibody you have. So it can't give you an indication of how protected you are against the virus based on an antibody test.
0: So kind of related to this, there's a myth that's swirling now um, about viral shedding and that people who have been vaccinated are shedding virus and that just being near someone who's been vaccinated can get other people sick or can have all these other terrible effects, um, you know, these myths that are also related to getting vaccinated. So if you're not infected with the virus, you're not going to shed virus, right Andrea? So by getting the vaccine, which we know has no live virus present, you're not, that, that's an impossibility. It's you're it's not going to it's shed impo- virus. It's,
2: it's very hard to debunk these very outlandish myths because right. it's just, it's frankly implausible, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, None of these vaccines contain intact live SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, especially those that are being used in the United States. Um, some people were then saying, well, you're shedding spike proteins, which again, you're not shedding spike proteins. And even if you were, it wouldn't be affecting other people because it's it's a protein, right? It's not floating around in the air causing illness to people. It's it's a little component that's triggering your immune response. So, you know, it's It's just completely baseless. And, um, you know, there are certain vaccines that are made with attenuated viruses. So these are live but weakened viruses that could, in theory, shed virus to other people. We've seen that with, say, the oral polio vaccine, which is not used in the United States anymore. But that is a completely different type of vaccine that involves an actual living virus. These have no living virus in them whatsoever.
0: Mm -hmm. So we have so many questions coming through and I'm trying to be mindful of the clock. So I wanna get through definitely two questions that have come up thousands of times. (laughs) The first is why haven't the vaccines received FDA approval? So in order to get FDA approval, you are required to have six months of data. In the middle of a pandemic, there's something called an EUA, an emergency use authorization, which only requires two months of data. So in a crazy time-sensitive, time-crunch situation like a pandemic, we don't have the luxury of time where we can wait for six months of data, right? So we use the, the equivalent, which is the emergency use authorization. So we have two months of data. That is why we have an EUA and not full approval. That being said, now we do have six months of data, so these companies have approved for full FDA approval, and we do expect that that is going to come through very soon. And I want to
2: mention the EUA route is available when there is a national emergency declared. So the tests that were being used, the antibody therapies, all sorts of things, these are all under the EUA umbrella, and for the same reason that Jess just explained. So, you know, if you think about it, we collected two months of preliminary data. The data was very, were very positive, and we were able to vaccinate 200 million people in the time it took to collect the additional four months of data. So now we have the six months of data. There are no safety signals. There are no changes. The vaccines are still highly effective. And we've already protected a large swath of people. So that's pretty, sorry, 200 million doses, not 200 million people. Um, Mm -hmm. So about 100 million people. Um, But that's huge because now we've gotten a head start and we've demonstrated that the vaccines are still safe, effective, and um, are going to be submitted for that full approval. I want to make note of another thing that we keep getting asked about. And this is, you know, we're rushing it because normally you need six months of data. So you're only doing it in two months of data. But the issue becomes is. Many clinical trials take a very long time to conduct, years to conduct, not because they're collecting data for a single person across those years, but because in a general sense of a clinical trial, it takes a long time to recruit enough participants. So you have to find people over many years. So you find a group in the first year, maybe find another group in the second year. So you're collecting data kind of in chunks over a long period of time. During a global pandemic, we have everybody available to enroll in clinical trials and people are clamoring because there's a pandemic and they want to participate. So we were able to fill the enrollment for these clinical trials at the same time and follow all those people at the same time.
0: And, in, and Andrea, absolutely. So in, and in addition to just recruiting volunteers who are plentiful right now, you also have enough people who are exposed to the virus, right, in the, in the pandemic. So that's another part of it. We want to see what is the efficacy the, of these vaccines when you're confronted with the virus. So in times of a pandemic, you are going to have all of those data points. Right. So. The other thing that I think, oh, yeah. I was just going to say one more thing. And on top of
2: that, normally manufacturing happens at the end of the kind of clinical phases of these research trials. But during a pandemic, these companies are taking on financial risk by starting manufacturing while the clinical trials are still being conducted. So what that means is if the data are positive, they already have manufacturing facilities and doses ready to go if the data are not positive, then they've lost a bunch of money. And we saw that with Sanofi and GSK's failed vaccine. We saw that with Merck's abandoned vaccine. So it's not just we're letting everything pass through these channels when they don't work. They don't work. And and unfortunately, it's a financial risk, but it enables us to accommodate the urgency of a pandemic.
0: So very related to this, we hear so much misinformation that you touched on this that the trials were rushed that animal that the animal studies never happened that's not true the animal trials did happen and showed very positive results which is how we were able to move on to the to the clinical trials but here's the thing guys in in reality in non-pandemic reality these things happen one after the other right In a pandemic, we don't have the luxury of of time, right? So all of the phases of these trials still happen, but instead of happening consecutively, they happen concurrently. So they're happening at the same time. So absolutely no phases are skipped. I just want to say it one more time for the people in the back. (laughs) No phases are skipped. Animal trials were not skipped. Not a single phase of clinical trials were skipped. They just were basically, you see how I'm doing this? They're stacked concurrently instead of consecutively. All right, next mega myth that we have to talk about Is, well, I don't know if it's a myth, but it's a major cause for hesitancy is that we don't have long term data. Now, Okay. <laughs> I was just going to say, we just posted about this today on our
2: Facebook and Instagram pages. So for those of you who are watching that are in the South Florida COVID vaccine info group, you can find us at unbiased SciPod on either Facebook or Instagram to check it out specifically. Um, but I'll kick it off with the fact that vaccine reactions typically occur within a very short period of time after vaccination the vast majority of reactions to vaccines and most of them are expected that's a phenomenon called reactogenicity it's our immune response to this foreign invader so things like uh, fever, low-grade fever, headache, lethargy, injection site soreness or reactions. Um, I had axillary lymphadenopathy when I got my Pfizer, which is a swollen lymph node in my armpit um, near the you know the arm that I got my shot in. Um, and that's, again, a sign that those immune cells are proliferating and are doing what they're supposed to be doing. These typically start within a day or two of getting the vaccine, and they typically dissipate within a week or two. Um, In certain instances, and we actually use some examples in our post today, of other vaccines that have been followed and monitored for decades, there are certain rare adverse events. And even amongst those, they all occur within the first two months of vaccines. There is nothing in the history books of vaccines that crops up years after the fact. This is not a thing. These vaccines, the components of the vaccines are only in our bodies for a very short period of time, and then they are flushed out. So they're not hanging around to reactivate later or cause symptoms after the fact. Um, So even these rare events that are captured by once we get millions and millions of people vaccinated, they still would only occur within a short window of time after getting that vaccination.
0: But Andrea, isn't mRNA technology new? (laughs) No, it is not. (laughs) No, it is not. We have decades of data on our mRNA technology, over three decades of data. And actually, there were mRNA vaccines that were in development and did go through animal trials and some clinical trials with human beings. And they actually, there there were no major safety issues flagged. The issue is that the vaccines, they weren't that great. They weren't very effective at Pre- preventing whatever disease it was that they were being developed to prevent. That's right. the only reason that they are and, not
2: here. Right. And these, those, those previous RNA vaccines were for many illnesses that we had some existing vaccines for, and they were trying to determine if the RNA vaccine route was a better route. And so they were very safe. They just weren't as good as the existing vaccines or they just weren't generally that effective or they didn't last very long in terms of potency. And part of that is these decades of research with RNA, we understand how RNA works. RNA is a very unstable molecule by itself. So a lot of the research involved was to figure out how to stabilize it better, how to make sure it actually gets to the cell it's supposed to get to, how to make sure that it actually Um, serves appropriately as that template for that protein and all of that. So a lot of the research, the the 30 plus years of research was trying to determine the best way, the most efficient way of making sure the RNA is not fragile, not so fragile that it degrades before it even gets to where it's supposed to go. Um, And so we perfected that and Coincidentally, there were actually other vaccines, other RNA vaccines in development. There was actually some cancer RNA vaccines in development as well. But then COVID came along, so we could take all of that information, all of that research, all of that knowledge, and shuttle it to developing these COVID vaccines really, really quickly.
0: And the cool thing, Andrea, is that I'm I'm thinking maybe the silver lining of this uh, pandemic is that there'll be this renewed attention to these mRNA vaccines and maybe this technology could be used for, for other diseases.
2: Yeah, and honestly, it has a ton of promise for other illnesses that we don't currently have a vaccine for um, because of the nature of the platform, the the RNA. It's a very, it's it's simplistic when you look at the ingredient list, but to actually construct them, it's quite complex, um, but it's very elegant and it could be used... I don't want to say universally, but for a broad array of other illnesses.
0: So on that topic, can you tell us a little bit about how we know for sure that the mRNA vaccines cannot alter our DNA? <laughs> so,
2: yeah, I'll try and keep it simplified. But so when you have a cell, right? So so in our cells, we have RNA, right? Our cells are always making RNA. So you have this... Um, It's called the central dogma of molecular biology, but it basically means that our DNA, which is our encyclopedia for everything that we are, um, is converted into RNA, which is converted into protein. So RNA is kind of the intermediate between the DNA and the protein, which is the physical representation of our genes. So that could be things like hair color, eye color, the protein that your fingernails are made of. All of these things are ultimately from proteins that came by way of RNA. Now, DNA is contained inside a specific compartment within our cells called the nucleus, and that is segregated from the rest of our cells. RNA is maintained and it lives in an entirely different compartment of our cells than our DNA. And that's going to be true even with these RNAs that were getting injected during the vaccine. They don't have any sort of sequence or template on them that would allow them to get into our nucleus and interact with our DNA. And on top of that, they're just not compatible molecules. Just because they have the NA in both of them, they're very different molecules. DNA is very different from RNA. Um, So they're not interacting with our DNA. We've heard a lot of People saying that it's a type of gene therapy, and this is not a gene therapy. This is a vaccine. A vaccine is something that triggers an immune response, and that's what this is doing. Um, And again, it is not interacting with our DNA. On top of that, these RNAs, as I mentioned, are fragile. They only exist for a short period of time to make that protein, and then they deteriorate and degrade. So they're not hanging out in our bodies for long periods of time. It's, It's, you
0: know... Days at most. So basically, <laughs> in a nutshell, it's an impossibility. It is biologically implausible. It, it cannot happen, right? Okay. So I'm trying to be mindful of the clock here. I think we should answer one more question that did come up quite a bit, and then we can turn things back over to to Russ and Catherine uh, to bring us home. But we get asked a lot, you know, I had COVID last year, earlier this year, you know, I'm assuming I have some protection, I have some antibodies, I don't need to get the vaccine, it's not that important for me. I'll give my layman's, uh, my layperson's uh, response to that. and Andrea, you could chime in, but natural infection versus or uh, natural immunity versus vaccine induced immunity are two very different things and what we've seen with this particular virus is that the antibodies that are generated by natural infection if you actually get COVID-19 they aren't as robust and they don't last as long as vaccine-induced immunity. And so yes, even if you've had COVID-19, you absolutely should get the vaccine. So we think that people who have had COVID, they have protection for about three months or so. We now know for sure that with these vaccines, we have at least six months of protection, really, really good protection, likely much longer than that. So even if you've had COVID, it is still very important to get it. And the other kind of cool thing, this is really anecdotal at this Point, but we've seen that some folks who've suffered from long-term effects of the virus—you know—we've heard all these things. It can affect every one of our organ systems. Um, long-term shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, brain fog, lots of different long, long-haul side effects there's been some anecdotal evidence that those things are positively impacted by the vaccine and are actually resolved after getting the vaccine. Again, we need more data on that to to know definitively, but that is promising. Did you have anything to add? Yeah, I'll just add that,
2: you know, not only are we, in the case of these vaccines, we're seeing that the immune response to vaccination is more robust than natural infection, but we also have to keep in mind that natural immunity is variable from person to person some people might have a very potent response and have pretty strong natural immunity some people have pretty low response and pretty you know nominal natural immunity and there's about 10 percent of people that mount no natural immunity after getting infected whatsoever and there's no way to predict that we can't look at a person and say okay well you have high immunity so you don't need the vaccine and you didn't mount that much immunity so you do need the vaccine so to normalize the playing field everybody who's previously had covid should get the vaccine um, because that's going to you know if, if anything, it's going to amplify that previous natural immunity. Um, there is some data that suggests that some people may have natural immunity for up to eight months. But again, we can't predict that. We can't look at a person and say, well, you have three months, you have eight months. So again, the vaccine is going to kind of reset everybody and pull them all up to a similar level of potency um, for the vaccine, for, the,
0: for protection. I guess I'd like to close out before we turn it over to, to Russ and Catherine. Um, young people, we know that you're young and healthy, and if you get COVID, the odds are you're not going to get very, very sick. Um, we need you. <laughs> we are all counting on you to get this vaccine. And unfortunately, we are seeing that the the dominant strain of the virus, this this B one one seven variant, is not only more transmissible. We but we're seeing a lot of young, healthy people get very, very very sick from COVID. We're not fear mongers, we're not trying to scare you. We are just living in the world of re- the reality of data. So please do it, do it for all of us. You know, If you don't wanna just do it for yourself, do it for your grandparents, do it for your neighbor who has cancer and, and, and just do it for all of us, please. It's been a very difficult year and we all wanna move past this. Um, and the last thing is please listen to experts this has been we're living through a plague right a modern day plague and we understand that people are scared there's a lot of information being thrown at us and then you throw in social media that gives a lot of people a platform for spreading misinformation please trust science please listen to experts in the field Even if you don't trust pharmaceutical companies, and by the way, we do because there's so much transparency and there are incredibly smart people working for these pharmaceutical companies, trust the researchers, the major academic institutions, the independent scientists who also are looking at the data and are overwhelmingly saying the vaccines are safe and they are our only safe path to getting through this pandemic.
2: And I think one last thing, um, because I think, you know, it's important to keep in mind some of these red flags of misinformation. So if there's someone who's claiming to be an expert in vaccines or a, you know, expert scientist or, you know, a physician or whatever the case happens to be, um, and they're making a claim that is a complete opposition to scientific consensus, which is the vast majority of, of scientific experts saying the opposite, it's far more likely that that person is spreading misinformation than than the fact that they've uh, revealed some secret that nobody else in the field discovered. Um, I think that is number one flag of misinformation.
0: And beware of their ulterior motives, right? Because we know that so many of those folks are saying, oh, no, it's a vitamin D deficiency. They're selling vitamin D supplements, right? So I totally agree with that. Um, With that, we hope that this was helpful and informative. Okay. Do you want to take us home, Andrea?
2: Sure. Thanks for joining us today. We hoped you learned a thing or two. Um, And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please also be sure to check out our website at www.unbiasedscipod.com. We post our show notes and links for every episode up there, and that includes today, which will have all of the links from the ACIP hearings, all of the presentations that were presented during the hearings so that you all can review that data yourselves. Next week, we will promise to shift gears and we are going to talk about cancer. Cancer is a very complex disease, so, we will focus on this episode on the basics and risk factors before digging into more details on future episodes. We will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID-19 on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science.
1: Yeah, oh, I am a